Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Genesis, which is a book all about beginnings. I invite you guys to turn there with me now, Genesis, and we are in chapters 42 to 46. If you've ever wondered what the beginnings of the universe was and what happened there, you can turn to Genesis. If you ever wondered about the beginnings of God's people, you also can turn to the book of Genesis. And in this book, God is making sure, making sure that we, his people, know from the beginning what exactly his ways and his character is. And the fact that he is indeed an all-sovereign God who is also with his people. That's what he's wanting us to be sure of in his book, that he indeed is an all-sovereign God who is also with his people. Our main character today is Joseph, and uh, he is really in need of remembering these truths, as his brothers are as well. Uh, God had promised to Abraham, a long time ago, from Genesis chapter 12, he had promised Abraham a three-folded blessing, <coughs> that, he would, that God would give him a land, that God would give him a great people, or basically a kingdom, and that also, one from his line would come to be a blessing to the universe, or blessing to all the tribes of the world. And these promises went from Abraham, to then his son Isaac, to then his son Jacob, and then also we see to his children. The problem is that the brothers here, who are inheriting the promises, are putting the very promises in jeopardy. And there is great hatred and hostility and anger between the children of God. Joseph's brothers hated him because of the privilege that he had received from his father. And so one day, they plotted to kill him. They plotted to murder him. But instead, by God's grace, they, inst they sell him into slavery for a profit. But during this difficult time, as we saw last week, God insists... That we know the Lord was with Joseph. And though he found himself behind bars in Egypt in due time, he rises to being the second in command over all of Egypt. The only one above him is the Pharaoh. And where this becomes an even more interesting section of scripture, as we've seen over the last uh, couple weeks here, is that a famine is coming. A famine is going to hit the land, and the nations, as it's mentioned there, will, in fact, stream to Egypt in general, but then Joseph in particular. So the question is, it is not, actually, the question is not uh, when or if Jacob and the rest of his family will go down to Egypt to see, the, the, to see uh, Joseph. The question is, when they do, what will Joseph do to them? That's the question here. It's not if they will. It's when they do, what is Joseph going to do to them? Look over at chapter 41, verse 57, and you see this. You see how all the nations are going to Joseph. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all of the earth. This sermon is going to be slightly different than normal. I don't really have a set outline, so you guys will just... Take notes, and, and we'll see various things that pop out here in Scripture. And we're going to be walking through the text there. But in general, you can kind of understand the text because it's framed in two goings, or trips to Egypt. The brothers go twice, and we look here at the first trip to Egypt. 
So let's join the family in the midst of their suffering. Look there in 42 verses 1 to 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. The famine, important to note, is a humanly uncontrollable problem. And this humanly uncontrollable problem is what sends these families, the brothers, together. I mean, that's really interesting, right? Before, they were separated, the brothers were separated by choice, because of sin, by their own actions. But now, because of a humanly uncontrollable act, now all of a sudden their worlds are going to collide. Egypt, of course, uh, if you've ever done an elementary school project, one I did, in public school, uh, we had to learn all about the Nile River, and uh, we had to simulate its overflowing aspect, how the water flooded the, 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 the land around it, enabling their crops to grow. So naturally, Egypt is a very wealthy place in many respects. One of them is that uh, you know they're able to grow all of their crops. So all of the nations are coming to Joseph and to Egypt to buy grain and really to survive in the midst of this famine. This is not a good time. You know, in Scripture, there are many times when famines are mentioned and people flee. They, they, they run for their lives. And that's what's going on here. Jacob is looking at his children and his children's children and their futures and thinking that they need to survive. Let's see what happens next. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. Second in command here. Governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Have you ever had bad blood with somebody? You know, in preparation for the sermon, uh, last week, uh, at least last week, I told you that I first made a trip to the principal's office in elementary school. That's actually not true. In preparation for the sermon, I was thinking, bad blood, and I realized that I made the uh, trip to the principal's office when I was five years old, in kindergarten. I had some anger issues of my own, very similar to these brothers, and apparently, as my parents uh, used to tell me, I, uh, it was a minor incident, apparently I had thrown a chair at a little boy. The boy was okay, by the way. His name was Floyd. I remember Floyd. That's bad blood. If I were to see Floyd, he would have an issue with me, and I would have an issue with him because he's the one who punched me. So that's bad blood. And it's interesting, if I were to see Floyd today, I would think back to that incident. And here, you have to wonder, what exactly is Joseph going through as he sees his brothers and recognizes them? Just imagine the flood of emotions that someone might have because... Some injustice was done to some other person. I mean, some of you guys know what this is like. Some action is associated with a person. Some emotions that you feel are associated with this person and this suffering. It's fascinating. You know, whatever emotions he could have been experiencing, verse 8 says that as his brothers bowed down before him, Joseph remembers something. It isn't actually all of the hostility that he had faced. It is he remembers his dreams, that he dreamed of them. This is 22 years ago. 
this incident that he remembers dreaming about here. In previous chapters, you see there in 41 verse 30, uh, 46, chapter 41 verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he becomes the viceroy or the second in command of all of Egypt. And then there's seven years of, of plenty. He dreams that and that comes true. So here he's 37 or there he's 37. And then we see later on that we're about two years into the famine. And so he's about 39. So when his brothers ditched him, he was 17. That's 22 years earlier And what he remembers is not what they did to him, but the dreams that he had, the dreams that God himself had given him. Joseph dreamed exactly this, that his brothers would be bowing down before him in recognition of his authority. And in the moment, Joseph, it seems, according to the passage, he seems to come up with this plan to test their honesty. Throughout the passage, actually, Joseph, he doesn't stand ready to carry out wrath. He actually stands wanting to reconcile with his brothers, with the very ones who wanted to kill him. And so what he does here, before he can entrust himself to them, he has to know if they're trustworthy. So he comes up with this test to test their honesty. So the first trip down is associated with this test uh, for their honesty. And then he speaks harshly to them, right? This is all like one big ruse in verse 7. He speaks harshly to them. And it's very natural that he would go on and do this. If you guys recall, it wasn't only that he had done these bad, the brothers had done this bad thing to Joseph. Earlier on, it's very clear that the brothers were known for anger, for vengeance, for wrath, and they go and wipe out basically an entire city to take revenge. So, right, he has to know, if, are these people going to do the exact same, same thing to me that they did to them? And are they going to do to me what they once did before? And he wants to know if they are honest. The way he tests their honesty is by questioning their motives. What he does there in verse 10, he says, uh, the verse before he says, look, you guys are spies. Come out to spy out the land. And they reply, we are not. We are honest men. That's a little hard to believe, of course. Uh, We as readers, we know that after they sell this brother into slavery, they go home and they tell a lie to their father. And they say that Joseph actually was torn apart by a wild animal, or at least they lead their father to believe that. So no, we should be saying, no, actually, you are not honest men regarding some very important things. Verses 12 and 13, there's some back and forth there, but eventually after the brothers tell the governor, right, they don't know who he is, after they tell the governor that they are 12 brothers, one has died and the other still at home, Joseph replies there in 15, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, so he's swearing on Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them in custody for three days. Now, after they have made their first trek down to Egypt, they find themselves in jail. They find themselves behind bars. And by God's sovereignty, they are experiencing for just three days what Joseph had experienced for years. Not only that, though, but just like Joseph, they were supposed to bring back word to their father, weren't they? Right? Remember that one point in time, Joseph was sent out to bring back word on the brothers And that's what gets him into trouble. Here the brothers are supposed to bring back word to the father. And now nothing is going to happen. Now they're held against their will. 
The story moves on after three days are over. Joseph actually changes his mind and instead he tells nine of them to go home while keeping one of them. Imagine being in the brother's position. Imagine being before the world's greatest superpower. Immediately brought out of jail, standing before the number two man, perhaps the number two most powerful man in the known world then, and listen to what they say. You can tell that they are that they're kind of panicking here. The brothers in response they respond to Joseph in twenty one. Look there, you see there's a little window into their souls there. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. And they concluded, this is why this distress had come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not, or did I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You know, what people say really is a window into their soul. And here, you see that they are haunted by guilt. I too would be haunted by guilt. You too would be haunted by guilt. As Joseph begged them, it says. We don't know this earlier, but now it comes out. Joseph begged them. And you can just picture it. I mean, if you guys have done anything bad in your lives, and those thoughts and those feelings and the noises, the sentences, they haunt you. Imagine being the brothers. They could still see Joseph's face in the pit. Their ears could still hear his cries. And not only while he was in the pit, but as the brothers sat down to eat, as it says in the earlier chapter. And not only that, though, but while they watch him get carried off to Egypt to be nothing but a slave, they still see the visions. They still hear the noises and the sentences and the cries for help. And so they're haunted by guilt. So yeah, the, 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 they attribute the distress that they experienced now 22 years after the fact to the sovereign judgment of God. Because they're guilty. You know, while it is on one hand absolutely despicable for us to you know, hear them talk about these things, it is on the other hand a very good sign that they are talking about these things at all. In this test of honesty, I mean, don't we hear them being honest about their sin? They say there in 21, in truth, we are guilty. Now, they are no models of godliness. I mean, they still maintain their lie to their father, as we're going to see, but at least they acknowledge their own guilt over what they've done to their brother. That's a huge component for godly confession, acknowledging guilt for wrongdoing. And more so, acknowledging guilt before God. That's what's going on here. It is true that man goes against, you know, crosses man's boundaries as they sin against man. But first and foremost, men in their sin, we go against God's boundaries. Which is why Reuben concludes what he does. As sinners, they recognize, that they recognize God's right to punish and judge them for their sin. And that's part, that's inherent to the confession here. Not only do they acknowledge their guilt, but they acknowledge God's divine right to judge the sin. I mean, these are elements that compel godly confession. Uh, you know, oftentimes people, you and me, we bring our sinful deeds into the open, but without any concern 
for the lordship of God and his righteousness, his holiness, his sovereignty, the fact that he is judge. You know, we might confess sin and guilt, but oftentimes, you know, the last thing on our minds is the fact that we have crossed God's boundaries and are guilty before him. So think about the last time you confessed a sin or the last time you didn't confess a sin. Maybe you're too busy worrying about the reckoning that is going to come from other people. Right? We've crossed their boundaries and they are going to judge us. So maybe then we confess or maybe we don't confess. That just shows that we're man pleasers and man is who we worship. The reckoning comes from man. Or maybe we confess or don't confess because we're worried about our own judgment, the reckoning that comes from ourselves, living our fictional lives of our own perfection. You know, we don't want to fail our own ungodly standard of self-righteousness, and we, therefore, are what we worship. In my opinion, and in my own experience, these are oftentimes what compel a confession. We worship man. Or, in fact, we worship the idea of our own self-righteous selves. But Reuben and his brothers, you know, they seem to want to be God-pleasers. They acknowledge their guilt before God and they are concerned rightly about the reckoning and the judgment that comes from God alone. You know, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, if you find yourself in this situation wanting to confess or even afraid to confess uh, you know, know that your concerns there are horizontal. And that's good. That's a great and wonderful thing. So we ought to be concerned with the ways in which we treat our brothers and sisters, with the ways in which we treat fellow human beings. But what ought to be first and foremost in, or what ought to compel and consume your confession and reconciliation is being reconciled to God, your maker. Do not make other people God by dedicating to live up to their standards. Worry about how, do not, do not worry about how you look in other people's eyes. Do not make yourself God by dedicating your life to live up to your own false standards. Trying to maintain your own self-righteousness. Because friends, reckoning comes from God. Listen to Reuben's words again. There comes a reckoning for your sin. It is not from man, but from God. Friends, this verse here tells you, calls us all to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ who forgives. But friends, please do not hear us Christians uh, say or teach that Christians are to live in fear underneath a tyrannical God. No, Christians live secure in Jesus Christ. Absolutely secure. He is the one in whom God sent to bear the wrath that we deserved. So the reckoning that was to come to us because of our sin, Jesus Christ himself bears all upon himself and all because of God's grace and his love. I mean, you just imagine, why in the world would God send his son? It says that he did not come to judge, at least the first time in his coming. He did not come to judge but to save and in jesus christ god himself is extending a hand of reconciliation to sinners who deserve nothing but reckoning for their sins and judgment the bible even says in hell 
But praise God for Jesus Christ who lives uh, the life that we could not live in perfect righteousness. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ who dies on the cross, who bears the wrath and he wipes away our sin. And God himself is pleased. His face is changed from being wrathful to wanting to give his grace and his mercy and his love to sinners. Listen to these words. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will. That's a definite, right? That's a will obtain mercy. So now Christians, we live, we don't live in fear, but we live in confidence. Because we live in a relationship of love. Listen to these words, a summary of 1 John 4, 18, which says this. The fact that we are loved by Christ, it casts out fear. It casts out fear. Instead, I, have, I'm, I live now in this relationship where God desires to show me this great and marvelous love. Not because I deserve it, but simply because he desires to show it. Well, moving on, as, brothers, uh, as uh, the brothers discuss amongst themselves... Little do they know, Joseph can actually understand them. The verse says there that um, there's a translator between them. And being distraught as well. I think here we see, we see Joseph's heart. Being distraught as well, he turns away from them and he weeps there in verse 24. Hearing that Reuben did not play a part in the selling of Joseph, but in fact he tried to save him from murder. Instead, he takes Simeon and takes him into captivity. There, the tradition was that the oldest brother will be held responsible, so Reuben is not responsible because he tried to stop it. And so Simeon, the number two, he is held responsible. Joseph takes him into jail. You know, in God's sovereign providence and and in his kindness to the brothers, in his kindness, he is using the circumstances to force the brothers to deal with their past sins. That right there is just amazing that in God's kindness he actually uses circumstances and the fallout from sin in order to bring the brothers to know grace I mean that right there is a wonderful thing and they're forced to deal with their past sin because Simeon now is bound the brothers they abandoned Joseph by choice but now Simeon is bound by force they are separated by him not only that though but now they uh, fear losing Benjamin because Benjamin has to be brought down But God also forces them to deal with their past sins in what happens next. Look there in verse 25. Joseph actually returns their money to them. He tells the servant, put back the money that they brought down into their sacks. So they're supposed to go home with all their sacks. Their their sacks full of money. But if you remember, when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, what that means is they're going to go back to their father with silver clanging in their pockets, right? Spouting out lies to the father. Here, they have to go home with their sacks full of money, still maintaining their lie to their father. You see how God is using these circumstances to, to bring up the very fact that they are in sin. And this is a good and godly thing. And some of you guys might know what this is like even right now. Suffering from the consequences of sin. But friends, you realize that God allowing you to suffer the consequences of your sin is not God's wrath towards you if you're a Christian. But that could indeed be a doorway into God's grace. So you recognize, yes, you are a sinful person, 
But praise God for the grace that's in Jesus Christ and his blood. Now, that is a wonderful thing. And if you have the right brothers and sisters around you who know and who are solidly secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then when you are, in fact, suffering from the consequences of sin, your friends say, yes, brother, that is, in fact, true. Now, let's go to the gospel to see grace for even your suffering right now. And that, I think, is what's going to happen to Joseph's brothers here. And they're made to stare at their own sin over and over and over again as they face, as they bow before the very one that they had sold into slavery. Look there, verses 26 to 28 of 42, chapter 42. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This here is the honest, the, the crisis of their honesty test. You know, we read that and we say, If only, brothers, if only your hearts failed you 22 years earlier. If only there was a little bit more trembling before God as they threw Joseph into the pit and then sold them to the Ishmaelites. You know, here you're thinking that this is 22 years late. Too late, in fact. But again, while we can legitimately fault the brothers here for what they did in the past, again we see some good change. In verse 21, we have the admission and confession, you know, an awareness that, that, uh, of God's lordship over their lives. Here we see their hearts at least wanting to do what is right. Though change is slow, it is nevertheless good. In verses 29 to 34, the brothers reach their father in Canaan. So now, you know, they've gone all the way back. They made a U-turn. They tell him everything that happened as they went down to Egypt to talk to the man. It's an interesting way to refer to Joseph, but Joseph is referred to as the man. It distances the brothers from the guy. Look there in 33, 34. He's summarizing to, they're summarizing to their father. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. So now they've got to bring their brother down. Jacob in his old age, you know, as they're recounting what happens here, Jace, Joseph in his old... Sorry, Jacob in his old age, he basically loses it. Right, this is Jacob who's, you know, he's really old. He's going to die relatively soon. And uh, you see, look there in 36 to 38. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. And of course, right there, he speaks more than what he actually knows, doesn't he? He doesn't know that they killed, or sorry, that they sought to kill Joseph. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin... All this has come against me. Look at Reuben's response here. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, or the place of death. 
You feel his hopelessness there? Now they stand worse off than they began. If you recall, 42 verses 1 and 2, the very reason why they were sent down there was because they didn't want to die. They're escaping death. Now after the brothers have come back to Canaan, they talk to Jacob. Jacob still stares death in the face. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And the thought of losing Benjamin is too much. So the first trip is over, and there they stand, in greater despair than when they had left. With the turn to chapter 43, we begin the story of the brothers' second trip down to Egypt. You know, we're kind of left there in sorrow, in hopelessness. But here we see the second trip down to Egypt. As time passes, look there in verse 1, uh, it was not that long, and still a sorrowful jo- Jacob sends his son back to Egypt, as verses 1 and 2 say. And in the previous chapter, <clears throat> Reuben was taking the lead, right? Now we see Judah taking the lead. It's interesting, those two characters were the characters that spoke up earlier when they hatched the plan to kill and then eventually sell him into slavery. Now these two characters are stepping up in a way where they ought to be commended. It's a very fascinating transformation that we see here, all by God's grace. Look there at verses 3 to 5 in chapter 43. And Joseph here, uh, sorry, <clears throat> Judah here, he speaks up. We will not go down because the man told us that we should not see his face unless the younger brother is with us. Jacob responds, you know, he can't bear the thought of losing Benjamin. Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the men you had another brother? And in a very surprising conversation, in a very convincing and moving way, Judah actually takes responsibility for Benjamin. More evidence of transformation, right? The responsibility for Joseph, he coldly disregarded so many years ago, he now embraces for Benjamin. He doesn't care at all about Joseph's life, but here he cares for Benjamin's and his father's. Before he spoke up to sell his brother for profit, but here he speaks up and assumes all liabilities. Look there at verses 8 and 9. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So not only does he have concern for himself, he has concern for his whole entire family. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Again, you realize that these are good signs. Not only is Judah not doing what he once did, that is, trying to throw his brothers under the bus, now he is doing what he should have been doing. You know, as we apply this to today's situation, to us, if you're a Christian, this is very much like conversion, isn't it? It's very much like conversion. Conversion, all by God's grace, is not only, it not only involves us saying no to all the bad things, no to sin, it also involves saying yes to righteousness. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says, for, God, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now listen to what the grace of God does Training us to renounce ungodliness, that's saying no, and worldly passions. But then also, positively, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Godliness not only involves saying no, it also involves saying yes. That's what we see Judah doing. 
Jacob says in verses four, 11 to 14, he says, go. I mean, right, what other options are there? We either, we either stay and die or we go and take a risk. And he cares about everybody involved. This is desperation here. So in these verses, 11 to 14, they prepare to go. Jacob instructs them to take a present. He says, look, bring all this stuff we got in our land at least. Fruit, balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take the money that was returned. You go and take more money, and then you go and buy more food. It is possible they could have lost everything. But in fact, there is actually a glimmer of hope. And we as readers are supposed to see, but there is a glimmer of hope in the midst of all of the sorrow. If you notice there in verse 11, Jacob is referred to not as Jacob, but what? Israel. It's his covenant name that God had given Jacob. It's his covenant name that is related to the inheriting of a land, a people, and a blessing. Israel, it says there. Not Jacob. Previously, he's been called Jacob. Not only that, though, he, how can followers of God who walk by faith and not by sight be discouraged when hearing Israel's blessing of pronouncement upon the people? Now, Jacob, we don't know if he really is laying hold to these here. You know, he's probably being tested. But again, he probably says more than he realizes. Look there in verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. This God Almighty here, this name here is associated, in fact, with God being sovereign over all things. But is also associated with the, being the God of the covenant. The God who promises, the God who fulfills everything that he promises, right? You can't go wrong underneath a covenant God. But of course, the courage that Israel may have here, his sons are learning to embrace. Verse 15. They take the present and they head down to Egypt to see the man. And look at Joseph's response. You know, we just saw this blessing upon God Almighty. May God grant you mercy. And look at the response when Joseph saw benjamin with them now the reason why benjamin is such a big deal is because this is his actual blood brother they have the same mother rachel um and so him and benjamin has to have this unique tie which is why there's so much here about benjamin when joseph saw benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon you know but the, the, the brothers fear though they think that this is all a setup. Bring them into the dining hall that I might slaughter them all. That's what they're thinking that Joseph is saying. And look there in verse 18. It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So in fear, they try and cut off the situation before they think it'll get out of hand. And so they go to the servant. Look there at verses 19 to 22. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of his house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We did not know who put our money in our sacks. So right there, you guys realize that Joseph is relieved, I think. I mean, he hasn't, technically it's a servant. But in Joseph's mind here, when he finds out that they have passed the honesty test, 
There's, there's cause for rejoicing here. Joseph can move more towards reconciliation with his brother. They pass the honesty test. They say, we didn't know who gave us back the money. It's amazing here. This confession. You see there, look in there, verse 23. What is their confession met with? It's actually met with grace. The servant says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Isn't that funny that here you have an Egyptian person, probably, an Egyptian telling the people of God, peace be with you. What a rebuke that must have been. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, technically, he's not telling a lie, right? He did actually receive the money. Joseph told him, just put it back. And uh, it's interesting, we don't know if he worships the God of the Old Testament, that is Yahweh, uh, Joseph's God. But nevertheless, he says, your God has done this. And so you see here with this confession, they're met with grace. But not only that, though, they're met with even more grace. Joseph brings them into his circle of blessing. Verses 26 to 34, this is a moving section here. Joseph brings his brother into his presence. Entrusting himself to them a little bit more, he eats with them and discusses with them things of more intimate nature. And so he asks them about his, their father. And then in 28, he, he sees his brother and he pronounces this blessing upon his brother. And then in 30, you know, again, he's overcome with his emotion and he excuses himself in order to weep. Again, you see him desiring to move towards these brothers. You don't get any sense that he is angry or hostile or suffering from bitterness but that he wants to reconcile he him eager to get back what he has lost and make up for the time look there in verses look there uh, they have a feast at 33 and they sat before him the firstborn according to the birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked at one another in amazement because this guy actually knows the birth order then 34 portions were taken to them from joseph's table but benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. You know, one wonders what kind of conversation, what kind of dinner conversation they must have had. As here, Joseph is trying to ask them questions about 22 years of life. But of course, Joseph, he doesn't exactly know how much to entrust himself to these people. In fact, he tests them, their honesty, and they pass. But honesty is not the only test. Honesty is not the only test. If you guys remember, <clears throat> covenant fidelity, covenant faithfulness is a really big deal here. And so uh, what was challenged before is Judah's covenant fidelity and the brothers' covenant fidelity. Will they care about the people of God or won't they care about the people of God? They show themselves to not care. And so very logically, Joseph moves to test them in covenant fidelity. First, it was a test of honesty. Now, it's the test of covenant fidelity. He wants to test them for their love of Benjamin, for the love of the father. Having come down to Egypt for the second time, Joseph now sends them home for the second time. But this time, with more money, Joseph tells his servant, look there in 44 verse 1, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for grain. So here he's kind of guaranteeing that he's going to see them again. 
even if they go home. They only have a certain amount of money left for their trip, but that's about it, as much as they can carry. But he also tells him, give them money and give them my cup. To a servant, he says, look, when you overtake them on the way back, I want you to basically say to them, you've stolen my cup. And then say, don't you know that my master practices divination from this cup? Now keep in mind, all this is just part of Joseph's test here. Uh, these kinds of cups, as was uh, normal in the practice then, they would be used to tell the future. Whether pouring oil into water or water into oil, the ways in which you know the things bubbled up, the, these people would read the future or try to based on the patterns. But just because it mentions that Joseph practices divination does not mean that we need to conclude that he actually does. Remember here, he's just trying to test them, doing, uh, portraying himself to be like every other Egyptian who has power in the land. We know too that from the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible that God alone possesses absolute knowledge of the future. And it's him too that gives this knowledge and dispenses this wisdom to his people. So, back to the story. When the servant actually catches up, uh, everything goes down just as Joseph plans. And the question here is, what would the brothers do? Would they throw Benjamin under the bus like they did Joseph? Is that actually what's going to happen here? The brothers have no idea what's, what's going on when the servant catches up and then accuses them. Look there, verse 10. Whoever has the cup will be Joseph's slave. He accuses them, you guys have stolen this, how could you do this? And then, and then he says, whoever has the cup will be Joseph's slave. The brothers, of course, they don't have any idea what's going on. So they say, no problem, go ahead and search everything. Verse 12, it says there, look there, he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the younger. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. But look at Judah's response there in verse 15, right? I mean, we, we should think like, go Judah. Here's Judah stepping up, isn't he? <clears throat> they eventually are brought to, uh, or uh, sorry, let's, let's go back there. Look at 15. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? So they're brought back before Joseph. Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Right, Judah knows that Benjamin is in trouble. Judah just pleaded with the father that, you know, I will stand as a substitute for him. And so he intercedes right here and he says, we will stand in place. We are guilty and he also. Joseph here, he responds. And he says, far be it from me, look at verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the one who had the cup will be my servant. Go back to your father. It's so fascinating how Benjamin is a stand-in for Joseph. Before the brothers, you know, they chose to leave Joseph. But now they are forced to leave Benjamin, just like they were Simeon. So the question is, will they persist? Will they be faithful? Look at what happens in verse 18. Yeah, this is so awesome. Judah went up to him. There's, there's no, there's no uh, notion here that he pauses. There's no break. There's no thinking, well, my life will be in danger. Gosh, will it really profit me and the rest of the brothers? There's no conversation of any deliberation. No alternate plan. He just interjects leadership. From 18 to, 20, 18 to 34, we see that Judah takes all responsibility. 
Here, Judah just, in these verses, Judah just backs up what we have already seen twice. For the first time, he says to his father, verses 8 to 10 of 43, he says, I will bear responsibility. The second time, he says it to Joseph, we will be your servants. And then here in 18 and 34, he speaks to Joseph. And in 18, he steps up forward and explains as anyone who would, as they approach the prince of Egypt with all humility and honor, says, please do not let your anger burn against your servant. We have a father whose life is bound up with the child. Benjamin, he used to have a brother, but he died, and he is now the last of his mother's children. And look, we know that you asked us to bring our youngest brother with us, and we did, and this was so difficult for our father, he despaired and said, look there in verse 28, there is one left, one left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Judah continues, trying to help the man understand the sorrow and the heartache of their father, uh, of their father, if Benjamin does not come back. Look there at verse 30 to 34. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us. Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, your, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So here again, he insists that he himself stand as a substitute for Benjamin. You see the deep concern here? It just bleeds from these verses. Here, Judah is showing, he's displaying a deep covenant love, a deep commitment to, actually, the covenant community. When Judah got the bright idea to sell Joseph into slavery a while back, he said, what profit is it if we kill our brothers? Let's sell him instead. There he's willing to give up his brother for his own profit. But here, speaking of covenant fidelity, he's willing to give up himself for the survival of his loved ones. Does that not speak of Jesus? And what he does in giving himself up in, on the cross so that his people would be secured in salvation. You look at all this covenant commitment here that Judas shows. All of a sudden this changed man. Verse 20, speaking of Benjamin, his brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Right? He has concern about his father's love for Benjamin. Verse 22, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for he, if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then in verse 30, as we just read, his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And then 34, I, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That right there is a proven, or he proves here that he is faithful to the covenant. He possesses covenant fidelity. This test is passed. First, the test of honesty is passed. Here, the test of covenant fidelity also is passed. Finally, getting these tests out, out of the way, 
Joseph just loses it. Look there at 45, 1 to 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, making everyone go out from uh, He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the, the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Look there, verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Up until now, he's only been known as the man, but here's the great reveal. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And obviously his brothers are perplexed right there. What did they feel? Is a good question. 22 years they thought he was gone. 22 years they wrestled with guilt. I mean, how might they have felt? Probably a thousand different emotions. Relieved? Their brother's still alive? Guilty? They, in fact, did try and throw him in. They did, in fact, sell him into slavery. Amazed? How in the world did this happen? Embarrassed. Humiliated. But regardless of how they felt, Scripture emphasizes that they rejoiced in their reunion. It's fascinating here, you know, in previous times we see Joseph's humiliation as he is sold into slavery, thrown into jail, falsely accused, and then his exaltation as Pharaoh makes him number two in the land. Uh, But it's fascinating here. You know, Joseph, he believes in God. There's no reason in the text for, for why we should doubt his faith in God. But here... There's every reason for us to doubt what the brothers are doing. You know, they're the ones who disregard covenant faithfulness. But yet we see their humiliation too. As they come crawling to Egypt, acknowledging their sin, humbled on their own because of circumstance and because they stand before this great ruler. But then yet you see their exaltation by the end of the story. All because of God's grace. All because they had to learn this covenant faithfulness, the very things that Joseph is ready to give to his brothers who tried to kill him. There is a question there. Are the brothers going to be like Cain or are they going to be like Abel who walk in righteousness? Here they walk in righteousness. And so in very many ways the story is over, isn't it? The brothers are reunited. They reconcile. You see later on in the story that they're falling on each other and weeping upon them. Verse 14 says there, he kissed all his brothers, he weeps upon them. And then some wonderful fact, you know, that there's there's this magnificent reunion here. But what's, what's more interesting in terms of us and how we understand how God uses circumstances in our lives to help us face sin, but then also to help us walk by faith and not by sight, Joseph does not give us long to camp out on Judah and his brother's covenant fidelity. He just just doesn't do that. The story doesn't allow us to do that. And that's a fascinating point. Because he knows that what his suffering and his family's suffering is about, ultimately. It's about God's covenant faithfulness. It's about God's commitment to his own righteousness and his own promises. That he lives by grace. Just as he promises, so he lives. And of course this is entirely right, just as we have already seen. If there is any covenant keeping going on, it is only because of the sovereign grace of God. Who is sovereign over his own covenant. Friends, as we wrap up this episode in Joseph's life, it is God's covenant keeping grace that we are pointed to. Look there at 45 verses 4 and 5. So Joseph said this 
to his brothers in tears. You know, I can imagine just sobbing and barely being able to talk. And this is what he says, come near to me, please. And the Kieran came near to him and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. It's not, damn you. It says, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It's a strange transition, isn't it? So far we've been, we've been fully invested in Joseph, we've been fully invested in Judah, and then also in Jacob, and then also in the brothers, and then all of a sudden he just sends us straight up, God sent me before you to preserve your life. And so it's so clear, we see how Joseph is understanding the world, and how Moses, who wrote down the first five books of the Old Testament, wants us to understand the circumstances of our lives, and most importantly, God's sovereignty in bringing about all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him. At the end of Genesis in chapter 50, the brothers in a perfect ending ask for Joseph's uh, forgiveness for everything that they had done. And 50 verse 20, go ahead and look there. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, that's fascinating right there. As for you, you meant evil against me. So he lays the blame on their shoulders. But then he says, but God was redeeming even the mistakes of man and the sins of man to bring about his good purposes. It's not God meant evil. It is you meant evil. And nevertheless... Even your evil is not going to keep God from fulfilling all of his covenant promises to those who don't deserve it. So here we have God's persistence, don't we? Here scattered on the pages of scripture that he fulfills his own covenant. Just as he promised to Abraham a land and many people and a blessing, so he promised to Isaac and so he promised to Jacob. In relation to the promise of a people, here he's fulfilling his promises to a ragtag bunch of brothers, a bunch of sinners. And so that's what he was going to do, fulfill his promises. God persists in covenant faithfulness even when we do not. Look at how many times God has said to save life. Right? We're thinking about the promise of a people in 43 to 8. 43 8. Just skim those verses. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father over Pharaoh, to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I mean, you read through these stories, and there's such an emphasis on children, and the children's children, and everything they have. There is no accident. This is the seed that is the beginning of a nation. And God is committed to fulfilling his promises. Look there at verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There, that's covenant commitment. Growing a nation. And then we go to back to God's promises for a land. We can look at uh, chapter 46. And confirmation about the promises are, is all about what chapter 46 is about. Israel, there in the beginning verses there, arrives at Beersheba. He offers sacrifices just like his forefathers did. 
But in verse 2, we have something unique. Something that has not been reported in a while. It's God speaks directly into the situation. Isn't that awesome? Like a little cap of the story here. God affirming everything he does and the promises he gives. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In that tradition, it was an honor for the, for the chosen one to close the father's eyes there. But here there's a reiteration of God's covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You also have there in verse 4 a reaffirmation of God's covenant presence. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I myself will bring you back up again to Canaan. And here that, that puts us looking forward to the book of Exodus, doesn't it? And everything that would happen there. And we know without doubt that God, in fact, was with his people, drawing them up, up again to Canaan. We know that, that the, in Exodus they would be millions going to Canaan. But here they go down to Egypt as 70. Look there at 46.5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, the sons of Israel, carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And so they head on down. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. Friends, what we have in the rest of and much of the rest of the chapter here is just a record of who went down. And many of us are tempted to just simply gloss over these verses. This, this is just merely a record of names. And it is a record of names, but friends, it is so much more than a record of names. It is a record of God's covenant-keeping love to those who don't deserve it. And so here you have, as they're going down to the promised land, or going down to Egypt... The promises of God are upon them. The God's covenant presence is with them. So you have each and every single one of the children of Jacob. All because God is faithful to his promises. In verse 8, these are the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and he lists them. In verse 10, the sons of Simeon. Verse 11, the sons of Levi. Verse 12, the sons of Judah. Verse 13, the sons of Issachar. 14, the sons of Zebulun. 16, the sons of Gad. 17, the sons of Asher. 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife. Joseph and Benjamin. To Joseph were born. 21, the sons of Benjamin. 23, the sons of Dan. In Genesis chapter 12, God started off with Abram and Sarai. Two people from a pagan land. He elects them to the praise of his glory. And without doubt there, there were fits and starts as the people struggled to walk by faith and not by sight. But now they are around 70, sojourning to the land of Egypt. As for God's promise, that for the one that would... Uh, come from Abraham's line and be a blessing to the world 
Well, this blessing, as mentioned before, it comes in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. As Genesis 49.10 says, this son would possess the scepter of rulership and lordship forever. Friends, I wonder right now if you are facing some sort of difficult situation and maybe are in need of reconciling with the one who's sitting next to you or with somebody. And maybe even you go through certain circumstances where God reminds you of your own sinfulness. Friends, keep in mind what Joseph keeps in mind here. That what others might do to you, God intends it for your good. And here, in the revelation, or in the midst of suffering in difficult circumstances, as you are reminded of your own sin, friend, you do in fact have an opportunity to go to your covenant-keeping God once again and to plead for His covenant-keeping grace and mercy and love, which is guaranteed for those who repent and believe. In conclusion, this Joseph story, we are met with all sorts of problems and we anticipate all of their resolutions. In fact, don't we see that throughout Genesis? God gives his covenant to his people and his people put it in jeopardy. But even though we see all of those problems, we see so clearly that God will not let his promises fail. Indeed, we anticipate what man will do as we make mistakes. But we also anticipate what God will do through man and circumstances. He'll bring about his will to save sinners. We see this most clearly in Christ's crucifixion. This ability to trust in, this, in God's plan to work out all things. In Acts 4, 27, it says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had planned. Your plan had predestined to take place. That's the sovereignty of God. Trusting in Him to work out everything for His glory and for our good. The question is, the question that Genesis reminds us and brings us back to is, will we walk by faith and not by sight? Just like Joseph did. And what good news? Just like his brothers did. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. As this story reminds us, Lord, we are all sinful, as everyone had a part in this unfortunate, unfortunate story. As Jacob sinned and played favorites, as Joseph was a bit proud and wanted to rub his favoritism in his brother's face, and especially as his brothers sold Joseph into slavery and committed some very deep and heinous crimes against their own brother. But Lord, how awesome is it that even though all of the people of God are still sinners, yet, Lord, you choose to use us. Yet, Lord, despite our sins and our problems and how we put the covenant in jeopardy, Lord, we know that from your perspective, you never let us go. And yet you are faithful to your own covenant. Lord, that speaks of your the powerful grace and your powerful mercy most clearly seen in Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you. We praise you, Jesus, for your covenant faithfulness that despite the suffering that you knew you would go through, yet, Lord, you fulfilled your Father's will. And despite our own sin, yet, Lord, you pledged to us that you would bleed until the death. We praise you as well for your resurrection and that in it, 
It tells the world that everything, our sin has been paid for, our wrath has been absorbed, and the Father's faith is now, face is now turned to us in love. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being a loving, steadfast Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.